The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Or write to Dean Bible Ministries Incorporated. That's at address 5868 Westheimer. W-E-S-T-H-E-I-M-E-R, number 461, Houston, Texas, 77057. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lay not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, will help thee, yea, will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder the soul and the spirit and the joints from the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Before we begin our study this morning, we need to, as always, make sure we are prepared in right spiritual condition, which means in fellowship with the Lord, filled with the Spirit. There's any... Uh, Sin in the life that has caused us, caused a disruption of fellowship. Our provision is 1 John 1 9 to simply admit or acknowledge our sins to God, and we're instantly forgiven of all sin because Christ paid the penalty for all sin on the cross. So we begin with a few moments of silent prayer to make sure we're in fellowship, and then I'll open. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that we have this privilege and opportunity to gather together as believer priests to study your word, that you have revealed yourself to us accurately, and you have guaranteed that the original writings were without error, and that as we study your word under the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit, he is the one who enables us to understand these things and to see how they apply in our lives. Father, we pray that as we study the things in the, these coming chapters, especially as how they, uh, they relate to our culture and, as our, and our nation, pray that you would help us to understand that these are teachings from your word and that, therefore, it is just as accurate and just as important as anything related to salvation or the spiritual life. We pray these things now in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Judges chapter 13. And having looked at the importance of life in the womb the last two Sundays, we're going to focus now on the rest of the birth narrative of Samson in Judges chapter 13. Judges 13, of course, is the, begins the last cycle in these series of six 
cycles of disobedience, discipline, and deliverance in the book of Judges. It is a negative book in many ways because it is portraying the problem that exists in Israel because of their disobedience to God, because of their negative volition, because of their assimilation to idolatry, because of their attraction to idolatry, their negative volition. And as a result of that, we've seen all kinds of consequences develop across the board culturally. One thing we must remember, you will never be taught this in any class in sociology or psychology, but the core issue in culture is always religion. Because ultimately what makes any culture what it is are value judgments. Values have to do with absolutes. Absolutes always derive from some sort of religious framework. And so the core issue in any culture or any subculture always relates to religious beliefs, to beliefs about God, beliefs about man, what man is like, what man's problems are. And every culture is always a mixture of a certain amount of false thinking, which we identify as non-biblical thinking, human viewpoint, or paganism by its technical definition. It's always a certain amount of paganism and a certain amount of Christianity. I don't think even at the uh, greatest level in any culture or subculture of impact by, of Christianity, that Christianity has had much more than probably or 30 or 40 percent impact on a culture. In every culture, even at the high point of Victorian England, when you had tremendous preaching and teaching by men like Charles Haddon Spurgeon and many, many others filling pulpits in England who were teaching the Bible. You had tremendous missions movement developing out of England in the mid-19th century. Even then, there, it was also mixed with a tremendous amount of, of paganism. You had Darwinism developing. You had uh, the whole aspect of survival of the fittest, which was in some ways inadvertently or inappropriately attached to uh, certain views of, of capitalism and pre, uh, free market economy, which made for very oppressive uh, workplaces. And you had problems with child labor, and you had oppression of uh, women in many places, and you had uh, many other problems in the culture. So just because it had a, a large Christian influence does not mean that it was, quote, Christian through and through and that there weren't major problems. There are always major problems because there's always a large number of people who aren't believers, a large number of even believers who aren't operating on the truth, and there's always a a web of ideas also called the cosmic system influencing people within any culture. So every culture and everybody in a culture or subculture, whether it's, a, whether it's Asian, African, Western European or what, needs to have the courage to be self-corrective. There is no culture that is autonomous. What has made much of Western European culture what it was historically was the influence of Christianity. If you took Christianity, the Judeo-Christian influence, out of Western civilization, there would be no difference in Western Europe today than you find in Asia, India, Africa, or any other raw pagan environment. What made Western European history what it was in all of its good points was the influence of Christianity. But there are always those who seek to destroy a civilization. And this last week somebody sent me an editorial 
from the Washington Times, dated June 5, 2001, written by Paul Craig Roberts, who's a columnist for the Times, and it is on the subject of wiping out civilization. Since it addresses issues that are not unfamiliar to us in this Judges series, and he makes several very perceptive observations, I thought, he would, I, thought I would read most of this to you this morning. He writes, a civilization builds slowly, and then along comes some brew to stamp it out, according to David Price Jones in the May 28th issue of National Review. Sometimes the brutes think they are building a new civilization, as did Mao Zedong when he destroyed the ancient walls of China's Forbidden City and innumerable pagodas and monuments along the Yangtze River. In our lifetime, the brutes are almost too numerous to catalog. The Khmer Rouge used Angkor Wat for a military base. That was an, in Cambodia, a very ancient site, tremendous archaeological value. Much was destroyed then. Uh, Romanian communist Nicolae Ceausescu destroyed the historic quarters of Bucharest. In the former Yugoslavia, Croats destroyed the 16th century bridge at Mostar. Serbs destroyed the Begova Mosque. Vukovar, an unspoiled Habsburg town, was reduced to a ruin. Palestinians burned the 7th century Jericho Synagogue. Hafez Assad of Syria destroyed the Sunni city of Hama. Saddam Hussein destroyed the Kuwaiti National Museum, perhaps the world's finest Islamic collection. Beirut and its historic center are gone. Christian Coptic churches and villages have been cleansed from the Egyptian landscape. The Taliban blew to pieces gigantic Buddhist statues 15 centuries old. Hindu extremists in India destroyed the Ayodhya Mosque built in the 16th century. The communists in World War II reduced Russia to a desert strewn with wreckages. The war also obliterated the great historic cities of Warsaw, Danzig, Dresden, Hamburg, Königsberg, and countless palaces, country homes, ancient bridges, scientific and artistic collections, and national libraries. As David Price Jones puts it, bang goes the past of country after country. When the Taliban blew up the Buddhist statues, the atrocity was front page news. It is surprising that cultural criminal has not yet been established as a counterpart to war criminal and cultural destroyers brought to, tr brought to trial. Wiping out a people's past is the same as rubbing out a people. Notice that. I'm going to come back and hitchhike on that idea in a little bit because in an era when we are prone to historical revisionism by many so-called intellectual elite, that is exactly what they are doing is trying to destroy our cultural past. And our cultural past, primarily for them, is any vestige of Judeo-Christian doctrine. Nevertheless, Roberts goes on to say, but... On second thought, it is not surprising that cultural criminal remains an undesignated offense. For all the physical damage Mr. Price Jones marshals, it is a drop in the bucket compared to the cultural damage done by our universities. If the World Court sent out a call for cultural criminals, huge chunks of the academic faculties and administrators in the U.S., U.K., Canada, and European countries would have to be indicted. I love it. The two functions of education are literacy and enculturation. We fail on both parts. 
People live in a culture the way they live in their bodies. Take away their culture and they die as a people. Our culture has been taken away by countless academic scribblers, deconstructionists, multiculturalists, postmodernists, critical race theorists, feminists, more ists than you want to hear. Altogether, they have destroyed meaning and reduced the greatness of Western civilization to an evil, white, racist, sexist, homophobic, hegemonic order. I just love it. And that's what we are. If you really, and what, what all that masks really is an attack on Christianity because Christianity so often by, some, by many groups in this country, by liberals, by atheists, by other subgroups, Christianity in a conservative evangelical interpretation of the Scriptures is now being labeled as white, European, sexist, homophobic, uh, racist uh, religion, and it's going to be designated eventually as a hate crime. Roberts goes on to say, anything good in Western civilization is said to have been stolen from black Africa, including the English language. Professors claim that Egyptians were blacks and that Aristotle stole his ideas from the Egyptian library in Alexandria. The distinguished scholars who make these claims are not sufficiently learned to know that the library was built after the death of Aristotle. One know-nothing, Martin Bernal at Cornell he writes in Princess, of course, ignores the Mycenaean, Achaean, Dorian, and Ionian wells of ancient Greek culture in order to attribute the origins of Greek culture to Africa. The white kids who attend Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Cornell, Stanford, Michigan, University of California, Duke, wherever, are enculturated into a pathology of guilt over evils allegedly perpetrated by their forebears. They are brainwashed into accepting unequal rights and limitations on their speech as atonements for the sins of their fathers. Listen to that. They are brainwashed into accepting unequal rights and limitations on their speech as atonements for the sins of their fathers. Those who resist are sentenced to sensitivity training, accused of various harassment crimes, and expelled. Propaganda not the interplay of ideas, rules the universities. It is routine for speakers who challenge the lies to be driven from the podium, as was Ann Coulter recently at that, quote, great, unquote, university, Cornell. Judging from David Horowitz's account of the affair, Cornell has a large number of students whose role models are Nazi brown shirts. Academics have buried Western civilization under a mountain of lies. The great books are not burned, but they are discredited with the charge that the great thinkers in the past were apologists for a white hegemonic order. The erasing of our culture progresses rapidly. Several years ago, it came to light that students in an Illinois public school were being taught that the ancient Egyptians were blacks who flew among the pyramids until whites arrived and killed the blacks who could fly. The reasons given for teaching this nonsense was to improve the self-esteem of black children and to explain to them why they don't live in the big houses. End of article. There are self-appointed intellectual elites in our culture that have been working for at least the past 30 or 40 years as sort of a vanguard, self-appointed vanguard to try to restructure American thinking. And usually this is dominated by people on the liberal left. It is often 
the case in this situation that most people don't understand what's going on and they don't realize the power bases that these people have accumulated at the university level as well as uh, politically and in the media. I'm constantly being reminded these days when I talk to those who are going to school somewhere that uh, no longer is there even a semblance of academic freedom. I remember when I was in college, uh, I was in various courses where I still had the freedom to disagree with the professor as long as I built a solid case for my position. But I hear more and more from students today that if they don't toe the uh, politically correct line of the professor in the classroom, then they have less than passing grades, and then they are... Um, uh, failed from the class or expelled from school because they don't adopt the politically correct views. In fact, there's one individual in this church who uh, just decided to go along after a while instead of fighting the system just to write whatever the professor wanted to hear and was told at the end of the course, my, how much you've grown this semester. You know, this is the kind of garbage that is being promoted in the university classroom. Now, most of you aren't going to be in the university classroom ever again. Most of you, though, are going to have children that will. And many of you are going to have children who are going to be taught by such brainwashed people who graduated from these same universities. These are the people who are, who are influencing our culture at large and we become affected by these ideas, even though we may not know the names of all of the so-called intellectual elite at Harvard, Yale, Princeton, uh, University of Southern California, or wherever. We do get impacted by those ideas from their students and their students' students, and they end up teaching our children in the classroom. So we have to be aware of what these ideas are and how they have affected us. And one way in which they have affected us is a, a subject that is addressed in this chapter in Judges in a somewhat subtle yet nevertheless important way, and that is the way we view ourselves as male and female, the way we view ourselves in terms of the role of men and women in society. And what we see here in the interplay between Samson's father and Samson's mother is a reflection of the fact that under paganism, there is always a destruction of the role relationships as defined by God, and the result is that there is always a breakdown in the family and in the marriage. And as a result of that, ultimately society crumbles because any culture is based and built upon uh, the correct use of uh, and the correct view of the divine institution of marriage and family. And when that falls apart then ultimately the culture, the society itself falls apart. And one of the things that has happened in recent years is as a result of the radical feminist movement, which is quite different from the suffragette movement that they claim to be the heirs of in the that originated in the 19th century. But in the modern feminist movement, there, was, there has been the very successful attempt at redefining the male-female role as not complementary, which is what the Bible defines, where the male and female have d distinct roles. One is not 
better, greater, more superior to the other, but they complement one another. They are to work together. But the, the feminist movement has redefined male-female roles as competition. So that men are, women are in competition with men. And one of the things that happened after World War II as a result of the tremendous prosperity in this nation, in fact, figures indicate that in 1970, uh, one, the, the father could work 40 hours a week outside the home, and the wife didn't work, mom didn't work, she stayed at home with the kids, and produced a certain level of income. To produce that same level of income and affluence, 15 years later, required both the husband and the wife to work outside the home, at usually 50 to 60 hours a week each. That was the result of the inflation that was brought to us at the end of the 1970s. But it has restructured society, and it was part of the overall uh, shift in the way uh, families are structured today. Now, as a result of, of the influence of the feminists, they failed the prosperity test. The prosperity test was to elev- would, would have given women a tremendous opportunity on the basis of all the labor-saving devices that had been developed in the first uh, 50, 60 years of this century, and, and coupled with the affluence, tremendous opportunity to have real leisure and use it in a positive way. You know, there's a value that goes all the way back to Aristotle and Sophocles and Plato talking about the value of a leisure class that enables them to use their free time for the benefit and enhancement of society. But what happened as a result of of the feminist movement was they rejected leisure time for the benefit of society and said, let's go find our value not in what we can do for society as a volunteer class, but let's go compete with men in the marketplace so we can be just like men. And let's go make compete for the same dollars, do the same job, and essentially you find women wanting to be men. I, I've been racking my brain for a couple of weeks, and I can't recall a single instance where you ever find men wanting to get into a women's group. But you continually find women banging down the door wanting to get into a men's club, a men's college, a, a men's group, whatever it is, that it is women who always seem to be uh, upset about the fact that there is a male enclave they can't get into. And I don't find too many men, I can't think of a single instance of men, wanting to get involved in a a women's group that excludes men. Now, I think that there is a place for same-sex groups, for men to have men's colleges, men's schools, and for women to have women's colleges and men's schools. It doesn't mean that one is more significant or more important than the other. That is a distortion. And although that has come into play, and there are aspects of culture of our culture from a pagan side that have used it that way as a way to uh, keep women down and a way to abuse women, but that doesn't come out of Christianity. That comes out of paganism. And you see that even in the time uh, in which we're speaking surrounding uh, Samson's birth. There are indications of this even at the time of Judges. So let's look at Judges chapter 13 and see what we discover on all of these important subjects. Verse 1 of the chapter in the first part of the verse gives us the cause for God's divine discipline on the nation Israel. Now the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. 
And we have studied again and again what this means is they have succumbed to the idolatry of the surrounding culture of the Canaanites here. Uh, specifically, it's going to get involved with the idolatry of the Philistines. The reality of divine discipline is then given in the second half of the verse, so that the Lord gave them into the hands of the Philistines 40 years. Now, we have gone through these cycles over and over again, and they've all been the same. The first five cycles, you've had a statement of the, of the uh, disobedience, a statement of the discipline, and then there has always been a cry for deliverance from the Jews. They have confessed their sin. That is conspicuously absent from this section. There is no cry for deliverance. There is no confession of sin. What we find, though, is God moving in grace to provide a deliverer in verse 2. And we have read in verse 5 that at the end of verse 5, the messenger from the Lord says that it is this boy, that when he becomes a man, he shall, note the phrase, begin to deliver Israel. Unlike Othniel and Ehud and Deborah and Gideon and Jephthah, he will not effect the deliverance. The deliverance ultimately doesn't come about until David finally defeats and takes over the territory of the Philistines in his reign at the, during his rule as king. They are defeated later at the Battle of Mizpah, but the final victory, I mean, at the Battle of Mizpah before Saul's made king, but the final victory doesn't come until David. So Samson is just going to begin to deliver from the hands of the Israelites. Now, what's happened with the Philistines is something else has taken place that we don't find before, and that is that rather than fighting off the Philistines, as we've seen before with the Midianites and the Moabites and the Ammonites and the Canaanites that continuously were oppressing Israel, the Jews fought back. There was resistance, even though they were defeated, even though they were under the hand of this oppressor for 7, 10, 15, 20 years, whatever it was. Now we find that there isn't resistance, rather there is Compromise. There is assimilation. There is no sense on the part of Israel of just uh, fighting off the influence of this pagan culture. We have to remember that the problem that Israel faced is the same problem we face in our culture today, and that is relativism. That there are no the idea that there are no absolute values. Everything is relative. You worship your gods, we'll worship my gods, and everything's just fine. Because after all, there's no objective reality. These gods exist simply as part of our own creation, part of our imagination. They may not say that overtly, but inherently they know that. And so we simply manipulate the gods. If we placate the gods, we give them what they want, then the gods will do what we want them to do. So there is this, and you find this in all systems of paganism, this idea of manipulating God to get what you want. And it's impacting Christianity today. You always find these pagan ideas present and reflected in the church. For the last... 30 years or more, 40 years, coming out of uh, what was a fringe element of the Pentecostal movement, you had the development of the health and wealth gospel, the so-called prosperity gospel, that came out of a, of a um, mind science cult going back to the mid-19th century with a man named Phineas Quimby, who was a teacher of 
of uh, Mary Baker Glover Patterson Eddy, who started Christian Science. She, he, he, Quimby also taught a guy named E.W. Kenyon, who then influenced a number of uh, influential Pentecostal preachers like Kenneth Hagin Sr., Sr. Uh, Kenneth Copeland, um, Oral Roberts, and a number of others. And it's paganism. It's the idea that if we give God money, God will give us tenfold back. I mean, I had one lady in one of my classes one time teaching at a Bible institute said, well, I don't like your view of God because I think God's like a Coke machine. You put in a quarter, you're going to get something back. You know, it's a mechanistic view of God. I can manipulate God. I can manipulate the universe. And what that does is it elevates man to the same level as God. It's the fulfillment of Satan's temptation in the Garden of Eden. Eat from the fruit, you'll be like God. And that's what man wants to be. And today we're seeing this rear its ugly little head even within the confines of allegedly conservative evangelical Christianity. There's a man whose ministry has benefited some of you, I know, because you've read some of his books, and uh, benefited me and at times in my ministry by the name of Bruce Wilkerson. And Bruce is a graduate of such a hallowed place as Dallas Seminary, even when it was still great back around, I think he was preceded me by a couple of years at, at seminary. And he uh, developed a ministry from his master's thesis project called Walk Through the Bible. And he's developed an international ministry called Walk Through the Bible Ministry. And they have all kinds of books and pamphlets. The Daily Walk is one of them. And he's just recently published a book that is now the number one selling book in the country. You won't find it on the New York Times bestseller list because they they, they have to be forced to recognize that Christian books exist. But um, it's, uh, it's just taking the marketplace by storm. And this book is called The Prayer of Jabez. The Prayer of Jabez. I don't know if any of you have run across this. It's a little-known prayer in uh, First Chronicles. Jabez lived at the time of the conquest, at the beginning of the book of Judges. And he utters a very brief little prayer uh, to God that God would bless him and enlarge his borders and give him the opportunity to gain victory over the Canaanites and to take possession of his inheritance. He's just using the faith rest drill. That's all he's doing. God's already promised Israel, these are your borders, this is your land, this is where your inheritance is going to be. The tribes have divided up the allotments among the clans and families. And so Jabez is simply saying, okay, God, you promised, now I'm holding you to that, and now I'm going to go into battle. Except Wilkerson has taken that as a prayer that you should pray literally, verbally, word for word, day in, day out for 30 years. He says so in his book that I have prayed this prayer day in and day out for the past 30 years, and God has blessed me because he prayed this prayer. So if you pray this prayer and say the same thing, I thought Jesus said something about repetition in prayer, that you don't just get involved in meaningless repetition over and over again. Rote repetition is part of the application of that. So we find the same kind of thinking infects us always when we live in a pagan society, that somehow we can manipulate God. There's some magic bullet, some magic pill, some, some secret formula that if I can just latch on to that, that God then will bless me. And this was typical even in, in the paganism of their day. They called it the fertility religions, that somehow if they impress God with their uh, sexual activities with the uh, temple prostitutes, then God in turn would make their land fertile. 
So they're involved in all of the fertility religions, and it's a breakdown of values, a breakdown of absolutes. And God is going to send a deliverer who's going to be really a bull in a china closet. He's going to go in there just to create havoc and to create a, a war, basically, because the Jews just want to passively assimilate to the Philistines and no longer maintain their distinction. And what God's going to have to do is shake everybody up and create some sort of antagonism between the Jews and the Philistines so that they will wake up to the reality of their own heritage. Before God can deliver them, though, they have to get to the point where they want deliverance, where they are willing to admit their sin and confess their sin. The same is true for an individual. A nation and an individual cannot return to God and confess sin without some concept of absolutes. If you're operating on a concept of pure relativism, then what is sin? Sin is just the the, uh, violation of some human standard and has nothing to do with any absolute, so why worry about confessing sin? And so we end up having its uh, mirror image in the church where you have those who teach that, after all, you don't need to confess your sin. Jesus paid the price for it, so it doesn't really matter what you do anymore. People cannot return to God, and an individual cannot return to God without absolutes in the soul. And the absolutes can only come from one source, and that is Bible doctrine. And that's what's going to happen, because there's going to be a return to doctrine. It doesn't occur until you get to the second half of this story, which comes in the first of Samuel. First book of Samuel, God calls out Samuel. Now, Samuel's life overlaps Samson's. They are... Uh, living at approximately the same time. Samuel is just a few years younger than Samson. Samson is the negative side. Samson is the one who follows in his own lust and never never does uh, God's plan, God's way. He does it his way, and all he does is stir up trouble. But it is Samuel who comes along as the last of the judges and the first of the prophets who, who goes around the country from the north to the south and teaches Bible classes day in and day out and trains men for the ministry to teach the Word and creates a training center at the temple in Shiloh called the School of the Prophets, which is where they were taught doctrine, where these men went out as itinerant preachers throughout the land of Israel and taught the Word. And as a result of the teaching of the Word, not gimmicks, not songs, not um, emotional campaigns, but as a result of the teaching of the Word of God, The people turn back to God. They confess their sin. They turn back to God. And then God effects the deliverance uh, at the Battle of Mizpah. And then eventually, as a result of doctrine, they come to the the high tide, the high water mark, let's say, of uh, of the Jewish kingdom, which is the kingdom of David and the kingdom of Saul. But it started with the doctrinal teaching of Samuel. It doesn't start with Samson. Samson just gets everybody all upset. What solves the problem is going to be the doctrinal teaching of of Samuel. And the lesson we learn from all of this is that ultimately it is doctrine that divides people. Doctrine always will create division. Jesus said, I came to bring a sword. When you teach the truth, there are always going to be those who react. Some are going to just ignore it passively. Others are going to react with extreme hostility, anger, and resentment. Because anybody who's living life the way they want to, uh, like that poem, that Invictus, that uh, uh, Timothy McVeigh 
quoted before he went to his death. Uh, they want to be the captain of their soul. And any time you teach that there are absolutes and you are not the captain of your soul, there's somebody else in charge, you can't do it your way no matter what you think. Oh, what's the reaction? How do we react when somebody tells us we can't have our way? We react in anger. And the more we're told you can't have it your way and there are absolutes, the, way we are, the more we don't get our way, the more angry we become. And see, that's part of what happens in the breakdown of values in a relativistic culture. We live in a culture of raw relativism where everybody thinks there are no absolutes, so I can do everything just as I want to. I'm the master of my soul. I'm the captain of my soul, the master of my destiny. I can do whatever I want to. So when you don't get what you want, what's the reaction? Rage, anger, hatred. And what do we see happening and talked about more and more on the news is the problem with rage, the problem in on high school campuses and, and elementary school campuses with kids who are just overcome with rage and anger at all kinds of things. Well, what is it in specific? And you find that they talk about road rage and um, the things that people do on the um, when they get involved in traffic and somebody cuts them off. Somebody was telling me last night about a horrible situation. I just couldn't believe it. Uh, happened not long ago in Southern California where some lady or some guy thought a lady had cut her off in traffic. So he forced her over, and when she rolled down her window, he reached in and grabbed her dog and threw it out into traffic. Killed the dog instantly. What creates this kind of rage and anger in society? It's because we're not getting our way. Because there really is a God out there who is in control. We're not in control. We can't manipulate that God, but relativism always wants to manipulate God and always wants to ignore Him and have it our own way. This is a situation in Israel. Now, a couple of things we need to note about uh, Samson and his birth that make this a, a unique situation. Seven points, briefly. First of all, Samson's cycle, the story of Samson, is much more biographical than any of the other deliverers. We know more about him personally than we do anybody else. Secondly, Samson's birth is told in detail. We don't know anything about the birth of Deborah, Othniel, Ehud, Gideon, Jephthah. Uh, We know Jephthah was illegitimate, but that's all we know. Samson's birth is told in detail, and he has a miraculous birth. Just as Israel is barren, his mother is barren, and just as Israel... God is going to bring life in the spiritual barrenness of Israel. God is going to bring life in the the physical barrenness of his mother's womb. The the symbolism that is present here is is incredible. There's there's no doubt that Hebrew poetry is full of symbolism. By symbolism, I don't mean that there's no literal reality. But what happens in Hebrew poetry, Poetry and in Hebrew narrative, under the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit, the writer chooses historical events and emphasizes certain things in the telling of the story, and those events also have a second level of meaning. Now, I'm not getting into some kind of allegory like you have with, um, with origin or spiritualizing the text. But the author is using these events to, to emphasize certain other things that are, are brought to mind. The idea that, that the barrenness of the, of the mother uh, reminds us of the barrenness of Israel. And just as God brings life where there is death, God is going to begin to bring life to Israel and restore Israel and deliver Israel 
uh, in the midst of their spiritually barren situation. We're told about Samson's death in detail. We're not told of the details of other judges' death. That's the third point. Fourth point that makes this story, this episode unique, is that Samson does not complete the deliverance. Samson does not complete the deliverance. The others all completed the deliverance and then the land had rest. But there's no completion of deliverance and no rest for the land when Samson dies. Fifth point, Samson operates alone. Samson operates alone. All the other judges uh, called up armies. They instituted a draft and called up the army and they went into battle. But there's no army. There's no major battle. There's just one man uh, stirring up trouble amongst the uh, Philistines. Sixth point, Samson never seems to be concerned about his relationship with God. And as you go back and you observe what happens from Othniel to Ehud to Deborah to Gideon to Jephthah, you see each time there's less and less of an emphasis on God. And God's hardly ever mentioned in the Samson's narrative except to show that God is working behind the scenes. He hasn't given up. He is continuously working behind the scenes despite Samson's negative volition. So Samson never seems to be concerned about his relationship with God. There's no real hint of any sort of spiritual sensitivity there at all. And then the seventh feature is that much, much more attention is given to Samson's personal life than any other judge. We know more about Samson than we do any of the other judges. One of the things I've pointed out before is when you're reading through the scriptures and everything's proceeding along at a a pace, you know, boom, 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 and then all of a sudden it just slows down. And and think about a camera, movie. You're watching this movie, and you go from from each judge, from, from Othniel to Ehud to Deborah to Gideon to Jephthah, and then it really slows down with Samson, and we go into four or five chapters focusing on Samson and all of this detail in his life, lights ought to be going off in our heads as to, wait a minute, what is the Holy Spirit trying to emphasize here? Why have we slowed down? Why are we looking at this individual in such detail? Why are these events here? It's not said about anybody else. So as soon as it slows down, we all say, wait a minute, wait a minute, the Holy Spirit is knocking on our head, trying to get our attention to focus on what is going on in this section. One of the things that, is, that I want to bring out here is that Samson's life and personality, certain events, key events in Samson's life and personality are highlighted by the author of Judges in order to draw out a parallel with what's going on as a nation. Samson represents the nation. You can look at this man and you can see characteristics in him and events in his life that illustrate exactly what the, what's going on in the nation of Israel. Some would say we have a former president and we could do the same thing with him and use his life and draw out certain events in his life that would illustrate many of the problems and perversions of our own nation. So it's not unusual for someone to do Something like that. It does not negate the historicity of the events, but it shows their importance in a new light. Nine points of things we need to pay attention to or we will miss the spiritual lesson of the passage. Number one, both Samson and Israel are chosen by God to perform a mission of deliverance apart from their own volition. 
Both Samson and Israel are chosen by God to perform a mission of deliverance apart from their own volition. God chooses Samson, imposes a Nazarite vow on him before he is ever born. Israel is called as Abram, but the nation isn't born until they go to Egypt and they come out in the Exodus. But they are called by Abraham for a mission that they are going to be the means through which God is going to bless the entire world. Israel is going to be the light to the Gentiles. It is going to be through Israel that God is going to bless all the nations. And it is through Samson that God is going to bless and deliver the nation. Point two, both Samson and Israel are born miraculously. Israel is born miraculously at the Exodus through all of the the ten plagues and then the departure and uh, the parting of the Red Sea. Samson is born miraculously because his mother is barren and yet God brings life into that womb. Point three, both Samson and Israel are born in the midst of a pagan environment and called to a life of separation and devotion to God. Both of them are born in the midst of a pagan environment. Israel in Egypt, Samson in an area that is right on the border with the Philistines and where the people are basically living and acting like Philistines. And both are called to a life of separation to God. Israel was called to be a people after his own heart. They were called to be a kingdom of priests. And Samson is to be a Nazarite. Point number four. Both Samson and Israel succumb to the lure of that pagan environment. Samson is drawn to foreign women. He never saw a woman he didn't lust after. And Israel is drawn to foreign gods. Every time they turn around, they want to go after another, another idol. And that is called in the Scripture spiritual adultery and playing the harlot. So there's a parallel between Samson's infidelity and his lustfulness and Israel's lust for foreign gods and rejection of God. Point number five, both Samson and Israel seek peaceful coexistence with the pagan environment around them. They both seek peaceful coexistence. They don't want to create a hostile uh, environment. They seek peaceful coexistence, but things change. Point number six, neither Samson nor Israel seem overly concerned with God. They're not operating on positive volition. They don't have a tremendous spiritual uh, uh, inclination. Samson is physically blind at the end, and that is a picture for us of Israel's spiritual blindness. Neither one of them have any positive volition toward God. Point number seven, both Samson and Israel want to manipulate God to their own ends and purposes. At the end, Samson says, God, if you'll just do this, then you know, I'll do this for you. I'll, I'll attack the, the Philistines if you'll just give me my strength back. What he really wanted was vengeance. Eighth point, both Samson and Israel are protected by God despite their disobedience. Now, this, is, this gets to the heart of the whole issue. Both Samson and Israel are protected and used by God despite their negative volition and their disobedience. This shows the emphasis of free will and the 
way that God's sovereignty overrides the negative volition of man. Samson is still negative. There's no spiritual inclination there. And he is going to suffer, and he's going to go through divine discipline, and he's going to have misery in his life. Yet, nevertheless, God still accomplishes his purposes in and through Samson. Yet, without violating Samson's free will. The same thing happens with Israel. God is still going to accomplish his purposes of blessing all the nations, even when Israel just wants to play the harlot with all the idols and all the false religions of the cultures around her. And this brings us to the ninth point, which is that the plan of God is not creaturely dependent. The plan of God is not creaturely dependent. None of us are so vital and so important that the plan of God hinges on our obedience or disobedience. The plan of God is not dependent upon us. God is going to accomplish His will and His purposes and His plan in human history despite our negative volition. The issue then is, are we going to be obedient and enjoy blessings of God in the midst of that, the outworking of His plan? Or are we going to be disobedient and just get a lot of suffering and heartache and misery God's still going to accomplish His plan. The issue is, are we going to have happiness and blessing, or are we going to have misery and sorrow? Those are just some introductory observations to grasp what's going on here. Now let's go on through the text. We've looked the last time at the initial appearance of the angel. We're told in verse 2, there was a certain man of Zorah. Now, this is a real offhand way of talking about the father. There's a certain man of Zor, nothing significant. We're not really told a whole lot. We're not told about his father, his grandfather. We're told that he's of the clan of the Danites. This is another sort of backhanded insult. This guy is not looked upon with great admiration by the writer of Judges. It's just little things that that are, are not said more than what is said. He's just called a certain man of Zorah. Of the clan, not the tribe. See, even his, even the uh, the tribe of Dan is diminished. This guy's insignificant, and we're going to say he's see in a bit that he is he's rather a spiritual dolt. He's somewhat jealous. He is um, he is just not a very positive figure at all. A certain man of Zor, the family of the Danites, whose name was Manoah. Incidentally, Manoah comes from the same root as the name for Noah and means rest. And yet what we see here is a somewhat restless man who, who can't accept his own role, his own position in life, and, and is, is somewhat insecure and in fighting for a certain level of attention. His name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and aboard him known children. So this is the problem, is her... Uh, barrenness, And this is crucial in Israel. And the ancient world in the biblical viewpoint of a woman is that a woman is ultimately reaches her highest level of fulfillment and role distinction is through the way she influences the world through her husband and through her children. A mother has more influence perhaps through her children than anything that she might individually do. And see, the feminist movement has come along and said, no, what you do as an individual is more important than your influence through your, through your husband or through your children. Give that up. Go out and compete with a man on a one-to-one level in, in the marketplace. 
She's barren, and so in her thinking and in uh, her divine viewpoint, she realizes that she will never be and all that God has intended for her to be and to have. And then something dramatic takes place one day. Verse 3, The angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, now you are barren and have borne no children, but you have conceived. We've seen that already, perfect tense of the verb. It should be translated as a past, not as a future. You have conceived and will give birth, imperfect of Yalad there, you will give birth to a son. Now, who is this, this mysterious personage that has appeared to her, the angel of the Lord? Hold your place here. We won't go to a passage in Judges, but let's just flip back to Genesis chapter 16. Genesis chapter 16, verse 7. Genesis 16:7 we read it's the appearance of the angel of the Lord the same personage to Hagar who is Sarah's maid and the mother of Abraham's firstborn Ishmael Now the angel of the Lord found her that is Hagar by a spring of water in the wilderness by the spring on the way to Shur and he said Hagar Sarah's maid where have you come from and where are you going and she said I'm fleeing from the presence of my mistress Sarah Then the angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit yourself to her authority. Moreover, the angel of the Lord said to her, I will greatly multiply your descendants so that they shall shall be too many to count. Now notice the promise made by this angel. An angel can't make this kind of promise. This promise is made not the Lord will multiply your descendants, but I will. So this is... This, the angel of the Lord is claiming the prerogatives of deity and goes on and explains that, verses 11, 12, and 13, and, uh, 11 and 12. And then in verse 13, we see um, Hagar's response. She says, Then she called the name of the Yahweh who spoke to her. See, who's been speaking to her? The angel of the Lord. But now she says, She called the name of the Lord who was speaking to her. She recognized the angel of the Lord is not an angel like the other angels. It is the divine envoy or messenger from God, the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ. We know that from scriptures, that this is the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ. And she calls him God. So in that, this passage we see that, that the angel of the Lord is full deity. Is, and Judges 6, 13 to 21, we saw the same thing with Gideon. But in Zechariah 1, 12... And 13, we see another distinction that's important to make about this personage. And there we discover that the angel of the Lord is not only God, but is distinct from Yahweh. See, in Genesis 16 and in Judges 6, the angel of Yahweh is viewed as Yahweh. But in Zechariah 1, 12 and 13, the angel of the Lord is having a conversation with Yahweh. Then the angel of the Lord answered and said... O Yahweh Shabaoth, Lord of the armies, how long will you have no compassion for Jerusalem and the cities of Judah with which thou hast been indignant these seventy years? And the Lord, that is Yahweh, answered the angel. So what we have here is in several passages the angel is the same as God, and in another passage it's distinct from God. So the angel of the Lord is both full deity and a distinct personality. The only solution, the only explanation from that is that the angel of the Lord 
is a theophany. A theophany is, a, is an appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ in the Old Testament, appearing visibly as a divine messenger to man. Never did God the Father appear. How do I, why do I know that? John 1.18 tells us, No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. So the only one who has, of the Trinity who has ever been revealed to man is the second person of the Trinity, the Lord Jesus Christ. So this is the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, as the readers, we know who this is. But she doesn't. She, she just sees a man. So we're clued in with a bit of omniscience into the drama to see what's going on. And the angel appears to her and tells her about the, the child that she's already conceived and the Nazarite vow. And then she's all excited about this in verse 6. And the woman came and told her husband, saying, A man of God. Notice, the, I want you to notice a progression of titles for this personage. A man of God. So here he's just a man of God, a messenger. She has no idea who he is. Which indicates a certain, a certain spiritual um, obtuseness on her part, but nothing like her husband's. She says, a man of God came to me. So apparently she's spiritually sensitive enough to realize it's a man from God. Came to me and his appearance was like the appearance of the angel of God. And notice the second thing I want to point out here is that throughout this passage you never find uh, them talk about Yahweh. Notice in your text, if you look back at, in your English version at verse 3, it says, The angel of the Lord, and Lord is in all caps, lowercase caps, or small caps, excuse me. Whereas the word God in verse 5 and verse 6 is all in you know, uppercase G, lowercase, zero, o, lowercase O, and lowercase D. Now what that means is when it's a lowercase, it translates to the Hebrew Elohim. When it's all um, small caps, that translates the Hebrew Yahweh. Never do they talk about Yahweh. All through this section of Samson, they don't talk about Yahweh. There's no recognition of God's covenant relationship with Israel. Yahweh always emphasizes God's covenant relationship with his people. They just talk about God in a generic sense. Not any different from anybody in our culture. Everybody talks about God, but what do they mean by God? So she just says, this is a man of God who came to me. His appearance was like the angel of God, a messenger of God, very awesome. And I did not ask him where he came from, nor did he tell me his name. So she's overwhelmed by his appearance, and she recognizes there's something special about him, but she hasn't identified him yet as God. But he said to me, Behold, you have conceived and, give birth, and will give birth to a son, and now you shall not drink wine or strong drink nor eat any unclean thing. For the boy shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. So the point that she reiterates to her husband is everything that the messenger of Yahweh said to her. She doesn't leave anything out. She goes through the whole thing. She says, this is a deal. I'm now pregnant. I'm going to have a, a boy. Uh, he's, he's supposed to be a Nazarite. And he's not supposed to, to drink anything from the fruit of the vine, drink no wine, no beer, uh, which was Shakar, part of the Levitical uh, stipulations for a Nazarite vow, and he's not supposed to touch any dead thing. He's going to be a Nazarite. Now look how Manoah responds. Then Manoah entreated to Yahweh and said, O Lord, notice he doesn't use the word Yahweh. He says, O Lord, Adonai, please let the man of God, the man of Elohim, 
whom thou hast sent come to us again, that he may teach us what to do for the boy who is to be born. What's wrong with this? He already did that. The angel already gave the instructions to the woman. See, Manoah says, wait a minute, I'm left out of this. I'm jealous. You know, why are you going to her? She's worthless. She's a woman. See, he's got this negative view of his wife. You've got to come to me, God. I'm the man. Now, why is the angel of the Lord not speaking to the man? And he never does speak to the man. Because he's dealing with the woman in terms of her divinely given role as the one who brings life into the world as a mother. He's not talking to the man in terms of his role, but he's got every typical paganism role reverses the distinctions between men and women. And he's all out of kilter, and he wants to be the one. He wants to be the boss. So in typical paganism, he's trying to be a little uh, assertive and overpowering. I don't care what you said to her. She's just the wife. You need to talk to me, God. Give me the instructions. And he's rejecting the sufficiency of the instructions he's been given. He's been told all he needs to know. But notice the, the patience and long-suffering of God. He puts up with our stupidity and stubbornness. And God listened to the voice of Manoah, and the angel of God came again to the woman as she was sitting in the field. Notice, he doesn't come to Manoah. He never does. He comes to the woman. Because God's making a point here. He says, this isn't your role, it's her role. It's not your job, it's her job, but out. Get some divine viewpoint going here, men, and recognize what your role and responsibility is and quit trying to act like a woman. So she's sitting in the field, but Manoah, her husband, was not with her. So she ran quickly and told her husband, Behold, a man who came the other days appeared to me. Then Manoah arose, followed his wife, and when he came to the man, he said to him, Are you the man who spoke to, to the woman? I am. And Manoah said, Now when your words come to pass, what shall the boy's mode of life and his vocation be? Uh, See, he's not, and and then the angel patiently tells him, let the woman pay attention to all that I said and repeats the instructions. Does Manoah learn anything new? Does he learn anything that he didn't already know? Not one thing. Not one thing. But he's impressed with this person, and he, he says to the angel, verse 15, that Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, please let us detain you so that we may prepare a kid for you. I, I'm impressed by you. Let's feed you. Now, in the ancient world at this time, in the Orient, this is not a simple task. We're not going to call up Domino's Pizza and have, uh, have them run the pizza down here in 30 minutes or less. Uh, we're going to have to go out. We're going to have to kill the, uh, a lamb or a goat, and we're going to have to butcher it, skin it, butcher it. And we're going to have to uh, clean it. And we're going to have to build a fire and prepare. This is a four, five, six-hour operation. This is not uh, something that's a thirty-minute quickie here. So let's let me detain you so we can prepare a kid for you. And the angel of the Lord says to Manoah, "Though you detain me, I will not eat your food." See, the angel recognizes Manoah doesn't realize who he is, and he's not going to validate Manoah's treating of the of the angel of the Lord as a man. He's going to indicate his distinctness. I'm not going to eat your food. If you're prepared a burnt offering, then offer it to Yahweh. For Manoah did not know that he was the angel of the Lord. That's the point. Because he doesn't know, because of Manoah's ignorance, the angel of the Lord is not going to eat with him. The angel of the Lord ate with Abraham. The angel of the Lord waited for Gideon to prepare a meal and a sacrifice. But he's not going to wait here because Manoah is spiritually dense and obtuse. He just isn't with the program. 
See, the man's supposed to be the spiritual leader, and Manoah's not. You, you see the role reversal. She knows what's going on spiritually. She's tuned in, but he's not. So Manoah says, what's your name? So that when your words come to pass, we may honor you. But the angel of the Lord said to him, why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful? And this is the Hebrew word palah, which is the same word used in Isaiah 9, 6, that the Lord would be called wonderful. This is a title of Yahweh indicating that his, his essence, his character is beyond human words. Even though we have many words we use to describe the character of God, we cannot fully, exhaustively understand God. So Manoah offers up a sacrifice. Skip down to verse 20. And it came about when the flame went up from the altar toward heaven, but the angel of the, that the angel of the Lord ascended in the flame of the altar. All of a sudden, he builds this fire. This, he's going to have a burnt offering, and the flame goes up, and the angel just steps over and right up to heaven. And at that point, Manoah, the light finally dawns on him, and he begins to realize that they've been talking with God, and he, falls on, he and his wife fell on their faces to the ground. Verse 21, the angel of the Lord no more appeared to Manoah or his wife. And then Manoah knew that he was the angel of Yahweh. So Manoah turns to his wife. Typical pagan superstition. We've seen the Lord, now we're going to die. And she shows some good sense. She says, looks to him. She probably said it with respect. I keep thinking she says it with the undertone of sarcasm here. She says, look. If he's going to go to all this trouble to appear to us and, and make sure that I'm pregnant and that he's going to do something to this child that's going to be born in another nine months, I don't think he's going to kill us. She probably didn't say it quite that facetiously and sarcastically, but she did make the point. And then another way to show that, that this text is not re- respective of this man who doesn't recognize his biblical role as a man in the family and spiritual leader in the home, when the boy is born, she names it. She names him Shimshon in the Hebrew. Shimshon, which is from the root, is related to the word son, Shemesh. Now, there's a lot of debate over this as to whether or not this is a pagan idea, pagan god, son, worshiping influence. I don't think so. Shemesh is the son. What God is going to do is enlighten Israel. This is like a type of Jesus Christ who came as the light in the world. Samson is the deliverer. He's going to begin the deliverance. Despite all of his disobedience and everything else, he is bringing light into the darkness of this period of the judges. He is a sign of God's grace despite all of the disobedience of Israel. They haven't cried out for a deliverer, yet God is going to deliver them anyway. And this is the picture for us, is that despite our disobedience and our failures, God's grace is still operational in our lives, and that God is the one who is going to work out His purposes, sometimes despite us, and sometimes override us, but God's grace is never abrogated by our disobedience. He loves us continuously, and for the believer, and for everybody, Jesus Christ paid the penalty for every single sin everybody will commit in human history. And so sin is no longer the issue. The issue is what do you think about Jesus Christ? That he paid the penalty for sin, so salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we thank you for this opportunity to understand how your grace is operational even throughout the Old Testament. 
Often we think that the Old Testament is based on law and New Testament based on grace. But here we see your grace again and again towards sinful creatures who have been called to a task and fail. And yet you continue to work in them. You never are unfaithful. You never leave us or forsake us. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning who is without hope, without eternal life, that they would take this opportunity to make that uh, certain in their own lives, that they would use this opportunity right where they sit to put their faith alone in Christ alone. Scripture says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand the things we've studied today, that we would reflect on them and be challenged in terms of our understanding of the dynamics of our own pagan culture and how we can remove uh, pagan thought, human viewpoint from our thinking, that you might be glorified as we apply doctrine and grow spiritually. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.